Galatians chapter 2 this evening. We are going to close out our time together looking at really what are some of the greatest verses in the Bible. You know, I used to hesitate to tell people that there were some portions of Scripture that were greater than others because it sounds sacrilegious, but there are. Um, B.B. Warfield, who I mentioned this morning, actually wrote a whole essay explaining how some portions of Scripture, even though it's all God's words, some are weightier and more significant to our Christian life than others. And this is one of those portions of Scripture that can be counted among the weightiest and most important. And for the sake of context, I want to read to us, beginning in verse 15, and we're going to read down to verse 21, but tonight I want us to just look in a focused way at verses 20 and 21, Galatians 2, 20 and 21, but we'll begin in verse 15 to set the background ground of this passage, and I know that you're going to find it a great help to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Um, before we do, let me again briefly pray for the preaching of God's Word. Father in heaven, would you strengthen both the one who preaches and those that hear your word, would you send your spirit to accompany it? Would you convict and edify and build us up in Christ? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Galatians 2, beginning in verse 15, and in this section, the Apostle Paul is confronting the Apostle Peter over uh, Peter's hypocrisy and his functional denial of the gospel, his Denial of the doctrine of justification by faith alone because of his actions in withdrawing from sitting with the Gentiles and refusing to eat with them. He was denying them table fellowship and was de facto telling them that they were less than Christians and less than deserving of table fellowship. He had been uh, led astray by a Judaizing heresy. And even Barnabas, Paul says, I love that verse, even Barnabas, it's a surprise even even faithful, encouraging Barnabas was led astray with the hypocrisy. And this is the confrontation. This is the discourse in part in which the Apostle Paul is confronting Peter. And he says there, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, and there he's playing off the terminology, the Jews believed that Gentiles were sinners, they were not. And he's saying, if now I live like a Gentile, would I be found a sinner unless Christ has justified Gentiles? If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, and he's talking about the ceremonial law, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died 
for no purpose. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was a teenager, I witnessed a pretty horrific accident. A friend of mine, she had been driving not far from where I was standing. I grew up on St. Simons Island, Georgia, and she had um, she had driven off the road and flipped her car over a fence and was in the hospital for quite a long time. She, for some period, suffered amnesia from the brain injury she sustained. And that was the first time I had ever experienced interacting with someone who didn't remember much about who they were or what had happened. And it was one of those moments where your heart sort of filled with pity for the person. You, you just sort of hurt for them, not being able to remember the things that we take for granted, remembering in our lives every day, all the time. And as I reflect on that, and I think about this situation here that we're looking at with the Apostle Paul confronting the Apostle Peter, Peter has suffered, as it were, something of spiritual amnesia. Um, he's forgotten all that Jesus has taught him. He has forgotten the gospel. He has, he has allowed himself to be moved away from believing that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone for all people, no matter what their backgrounds, no matter what their ethnicities, that the Jew has no better standing than the Gentile, that you don't need Christ plus anything. Derek Thomas likes to say uh, Paul is dealing with the damnable plus in Galatians, the damnable plus. He says at the beginning of the book that he is writing lest they receive another gospel, which is not another. But if anyone preaches another gospel, Paul says, let him be anathema. Let him be a curse to the deepest part of hell. That's the severity of what Paul is dealing with in Galatians. And here, Peter, of, of all people, Simon Peter, who had led the apostolic band, he was the chief among equals, as it were. He had been with Jesus all those years. He had been restored after his great fall of denying Jesus outside of Caiaphas' house. And, and, and he had been empowered on the day of Pentecost to preach what is arguably the greatest sermon ever preached in human history, apart from what our Lord Jesus preached on that day when 3,000 people from among the nations were brought to saving faith in Jesus. He had stood in the very place where he had denied Jesus, now empowered by the Spirit, and boldly proclaimed the Christ he had once denied. Um, and yet, we know Peter's struggles. Peter struggled to understand this issue um, when he was seeing the vision and the animals let down from heaven and God saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat three times. And Peter's arguing with the Lord, no, no, I'm not going to. Nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord, I won't do this. Um, this is stubborn Peter, but this is Peter who is suffering from spiritual amnesia. And the Apostle Paul is not confronting Simon Peter because he likes to, to be confrontational. Sometimes, especially in the Reformed Church, um, people wrongly uh, assume that faithfulness means you're going to be a pugnacious, controversial, uh, confronting individual. That if you're not fighting something, you're not being faithful. We don't get that sense with Paul. 
Paul, Paul confronts here because he has to, because the gospel's on the line. Paul confronts here because the, the heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone and Christ alone, is about to be lost by the very apostles of Jesus Christ. Um, one writer has said, and I've, I've sought to find this quote for years, but humanly speaking, if the Apostle Paul did not fight for the defense of justification by faith alone in Galatia, Christianity as we know it, biblical Christianity might have been lost at that point. Now, I know God is sovereign. I understand that. But the Apostle Paul steps up at that moment, and he does what, it, what is very difficult, and he confronts the Apostle Peter, and notice that he uses that language in verse 19, we, we who are Jews. He, he's appealing to Peter on a very personal level. He's saying, Peter, you and I know these things. Don't forget these things. Paul is, <clears throat> in one sense, trying to help Peter regain his spiritual memory. He's trying to help him remember what he ought to have remembered, you know, I do think this passage, and we'll see this here hopefully tonight, it is, it is moving to a place where um, the Apostle Paul is going to teach us that the secret to the Christian life is remembering who we are, what is already true of us because of who we are in union with Christ. And I think if Paul was here and if you asked him, you know, Paul, what do you think the greatest threat to true believers is? in the Christian life. I don't think he would say these false religions out there, though they are threats. I don't, I don't know that he would even say materialism, though that's a threat, or all the other sinful things with which we are inundated in our society and temptations. I think Paul would say forgetting who you are in Christ is the greatest threat to you growing in grace and maturing in the Christian faith. Um, spiritual amnesia, it's been called, this is the greatest threat, forgetting, forgetting what is already true. Samuel Johnson, the, um, the old writer said once, I don't think that people need to learn things so much as they need to be reminded of what they already know. I don't think that people need to learn new things that we do so much as they need to be reminded of what they already know. The apostles have this way of doing this, don't they? Peter will even, in his epistle, will say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm departing. My time is coming. Let me stir you up by way of reminder, even though you already know these things. He came to understand, didn't he, that we need to be reminded of the things we already know because we so easily forget them. Uh, it's been said by Martin Luther, <clears throat> said of Martin Luther that his people asked him, why, why do you preach justification by faith alone to us so much? And he said, because you always forget. <laughs> because you always forget. Because I always forget. Um, there's never a time where we, we get it and then we move on and we don't need it anymore. And here, Paul is, is saving the doctrine of justification by faith alone and defending that for the good of every generation until Christ comes again, but he is also rescuing Peter, and he is appealing to him on that personal level. Now, 
when he finally comes down to verse 19, and I want us to look uh, at, I'm sorry, verse 20 and 21, he is going to move into the first person pronoun, I. He's going to move from we to I, but he is he is not doing that as if it's not true, what he's going to say about Peter or you or me. All of us are brought into Paul's personal application of his understanding of what Christ has done for him and who he is in Christ. And uh, and sometimes we like to put it this way. All of the Christian life is bound up in owning the personal pronoun. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live by Faith in the, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian life is bound up in that confession. Um, I want us to consider here three things that Paul tells us about union with Christ and our identity um, in union with Christ for the Christian life. And the first is, and and it's very easy, we're going to see three things. First, that we've been crucified with Christ, that Christ is in me, and that Christ gave himself for me. With Christ, Christ in me, Christ for me. That's the process by which Paul is going to help us explain all that is already ours. We'll notice that when he comes to that grand crescendo in verse 20, He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul understands fundamentally that what it means to be a Christian is to be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl in union with Jesus. Um, That's everything for Paul. Union with Jesus is in the driver's seat for Paul. John Murray put it this way. He said, union with Christ, especially for Paul, is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. So union with the Lord Jesus is is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Paul will speak of uh, union with Christ under the the terms in Christ 150 times in the New Testament. In fact, when Paul wants to talk about the, the greatest experience he ever had when he was caught up into the third heavens, he says, um, I knew a man in Christ. I remember as a young Christian being like, who is this? Who is he talking about? He's talking about himself. I knew a man in Christ. That's how he wanted to think of himself. I'm in Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. He understands that that union that he has with Jesus, it it goes all the way to the very epicenter of the accomplishment of salvation so that when Jesus died, Paul could say, I was there with him on the cross. Um, John Gerstner used to say, that, you know, the old Negro spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And he said, you bet you were there. You were nailed to that tree with him. You see, God the Father chose us in him in eternity so that every step that Jesus took on earth, he took in union with you if you were chosen in him. I want you to think about that. There is never a time when Jesus is outside of you, if you were chosen in him and you have been savingly united to him, he died in your place. This is how we explain justification. 
Calvin used to say, he died in my person. He died in my person on the cross. He was constituted what I am without actually sinning. He was constituted a sinner. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the vital union. When he died on the cross, our old man died. Um, Paul will pick up on this, won't he, um, at the end of Galatians. And he will say, um, he will say, um, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which I was crucified to the world and the world to me. He understands that the cross created a definitive breach in his relationship with his sin and the world when he died to the power of sin in the death of Christ, when he died to the guilt of sin in the death of Jesus. So when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, he's saying, I've been crucified to the guilt and to the power of sin. That's awesome. That's, that's the epicenter. That's the secret. That's what happened. That really happened in time and space. Um, you know, how transforming it would be if we really meditated all the time on the fact that we have died with Jesus on the cross. Our old man nailed to the tree. Our old woman nailed to the tree with the sun. Um, John Calvin, when he was meditating on um, this issue, he said, if, if Christ is outside of you, if you're not united to him, then you have no saving benefits. There's, there's nothing. If you're united to him, you have everything. I love that. I love the way the Apostle Paul sets this up in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says, um, of him, of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, that is, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that he's the source of everything. Jesus can say definitively to his disciples, without me, you can do a little bit. No, without me, you can do nothing, right? Without me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. As, as the branch, as the vine abides, as the branch abides in the vine, so you abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. He is the source of our Christian life. There is no, there is no good in us. There is no power. There is no ability to do what is pleasing to God. That's why Paul goes here, because Paul understands that if at one point you acknowledge that it is Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, and then you move on and you try to, to live out the Christian life in the flesh, which is what's happening here, that you're functionally saying, I don't believe that it's Christ and Christ alone. I don't believe in that. I, I need to do something. I need to bring something to God for him to ultimately accept me. And when we do that, we are saying, I have something in me I can bring to God. And Jesus did not do enough. That's, that's the great, subtle danger of that, that we can start the Christian life by faith in Christ and then think that somehow we are bringing God something. Um, Paul says, listen, 
He says, here's, here's the confession. Here's, here's the Christian's identity. Here's the confession of a believer's identity. I've been crucified with Christ. And now notice this. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, the same Christ who offered himself on the cross in our person, in our place, is the same Christ who indwells us by his spirit. Um, that's awesome. Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. He said, lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. The Apostle Paul actually tells uh, numerous churches that, and Galatians are one of them, that he is laboring to see Christ formed in them. He said he's like a, a woman travailing in birth pangs until Christ is again formed in you. That, that's the goal, to remember what happened, to remember that we died with him, to remember our union with him so that we would then remember that he lives in us. If he died for us and he rose for us and we died with him and he rose, we rose with him, he now comes and dwells in us. And, and Paul says, notice, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul, and, and this has been said many times over, Paul's a one-thing man. Paul was a one-thing man. He was consumed with the person and the saving work of Jesus Christ. He had his eye fixed on Jesus. I was made aware this week that one of our elected officials replaced the words fixing your eyes on Jesus with fixing your eyes on old glory. Um, that's not good. That's not good. I'm not getting political. That's not good. Paul was a one-thing man. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I now live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God. And now notice this. Now he begins to talk more about who the Son of God is, who, and this is beautiful, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't normally quote Karl Barth. I heard this a number of years ago, and I will hear tonight. But Karl Barth was asked, um, what was the greatest Christian truth? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Um, Paul is saying that. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, I know I'm quoting a lot, but I love this. Martin Luther, uh, on this meditation, says this. Listen to this. He says, Christ is the lover of those who are in anguish, sin, and death. Let that sink in. Christ is the lover of those who are in anguish, sin, and death. And the kind of lover who gives himself for us and becomes our high priest, the one who interposes himself as mediator between God and miserable sinners. Isn't that awesome? Paul sees that the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is that Christ loved a miserable sinner like him and laid down his life for him. You know, I think the Apostle John understood this so well. He, 
he referred to himself, didn't he, as the one for whom, the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't think he means that Jesus loved him more than others. He meant my identity is that the Son of God loved me. He writes in that same gospel that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And then later on he said, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the cross. Augustine famously said the cross was his pulpit and the message was love. Isn't that awesome? Why was Jesus hanging on the cross for you? Because he loves you. Why was Jesus hanging on the cross? Because he loves me. He loves me. He gave himself for me. You see, Paul understands union with Christ, crucified with Christ. He also understands Christ for me. Um, It's never enough to say we believe that Christ died for sinners. You need to be able to say Christ died for me. Anyone can say Christ died for sinners. That's history. Christ died for me is spiritual and theological truth that you have to own for yourself. You have to own that Christ died for me. Um, As we begin to do that, um, our minds and our hearts start to be recalibrated. We start to regain our spiritual memory, who we really are. There is so much conversation right now, and I want to speak to the young people especially, about identity. Um, our country is on an identity gone wild trip right now. Um, and, and how should Christians interact? And there are, these are important discussions. But here's, here's how a Christian is to respond. Your sole identity is that you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life that you live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. That's our identity. That's who we are. That's, that's who I am. Um, anything else, it may, it may have a penultimate place in my life. But it really doesn't matter ultimately. This is why Paul later in this very letter could say, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither man nor woman. He says that here. He says it in Colossians. He's not saying there are no distinctions in life. He's not saying there are no other features about us that matter. He's saying at ground zero of being a Christian, this is it. This is it. And you know, I actually think I actually think that this is what we lose the quickest. Of all the identity things that we might think about ourselves, we lose this one the quickest. This is why Peter was ready to lose this, and Paul had to remind him. Isn't that interesting? Um, We don't forget, we don't forget most things about ourselves. We love to think about ourselves. We love to talk about our accomplishments, even subtly, of our identity. Well, then notice, notice that Paul says now, um, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, 
if we abandon this, we will be left to do one thing in our lives, and that is to try to establish our own righteousness. There's only, there's only two options. We abide in Christ and in the truth of who he is and what he's done and who we are in him, or we set aside God's grace and try to establish our own righteousness. That's it. There, there's, no, there's no third way. There's no via media. There's no, there's no loopholes. There's no, um, there's no 99% Jesus and 1% what I do. It's all or nothing. It's all the Lord Jesus or we set aside God's grace. And notice, I love the way Paul summarizes this at the end. He says, if righteousness were through the law, that is through any attempt that you have at keeping God's law, any attempt you're making to try to please God for your acceptance, we do want to be pleasing to him. We are, we're talking about justification. We do, we do love God's law. We are bound to, to walk in it, but not for justification, not for our standing, right? And, and if righteousness comes to us through the law, then Christ, Paul says, literally died in vain. Luther, in his, um, in his book, Bondage of the Will, has this really interesting rhetoric where he's interacting with Erasmus, who was his um, chief antagonist in the Roman Catholic Church. And, and Luther says, oh, Erasmus, he said, what a fool. Because Erasmus said that, that man had the ability in himself to do some good. Um, it's called semi-plagian. He, he believed that man had some good in him. And, and Luther said, oh, Erasmus, he said, what a fool Christ was to come into the world. What a fool he was to die on the cross. What a fool he was to send his Holy Spirit. Luther's using the same language Paul's using, saying if righteousness comes from what we do, Christ died in vain. I want to encourage you tonight, as you consider these truths, I want to ask you a few questions. One, I would ask you, have you embraced, have you embraced the fact that um, outside of Christ, you have nothing? It's no good. That's, that's, a start, that's the first starting point. And then I'd ask you, if you've come to the Lord Jesus, you've seen his sufficiency, you're trusting in him, um, are you keeping your eyes fixed on him and, and your identity in him? Is that, is that central for you? Are you reminding yourself? When you wake up in the morning, you ought to preach that to yourself. I've been crucified with Christ. You know, by tomorrow morning, I will have forgotten all kinds of things I need to remember spiritually. And so we, gotta, we have to remind ourselves. I would encourage you to be reminding yourself constantly of this truth. I would also encourage you to meditate often on the love of Jesus for you. There is nothing, there is nothing our souls need more than to know that the Lord Jesus loves us and has washed us from our sins in his blood. There's nothing, nothing greater than that. Um, I've heard it put this way, and I, I felt this. We often think of the Christian life as he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Just that roller coaster of now I've sinned, now he can't love me. And no, he, he loved you 
to the point of laying down his life to atone for all your sins so that when we sin, we can go back to him because he loves us. Isn't that marvelous? He never stops loving those for whom he died. Um, In fact, even when he chastens us, the writer of Hebrews says it's because he loves us. Right? God the Father disciplines those he loves. It's a mark of love because he and the Son and the Spirit have loved us from all eternity. Gerhardus Voss said it this way. He said the greatest proof that God will never stop loving you is that he never began. You need to think about that. He said, I've loved you with an everlasting love. There wasn't a moment in eternity when God started loving you. He loved you from all of eternity and for all of eternity. The greatest proof he will never stop loving you is that he never began. And I would say the greatest proof accompanied with that is that he gave himself for you on the cross. That's how I know he loves me. And so I would encourage you to meditate often on his love. And then finally, I would encourage you to examine yourself in your relationship with the Lord and ask yourself, how often am I trying to establish my own righteousness? I think we do it far more than we would readily want to admit. How often am I allowing myself to think God is going to accept me because of my obedience rather than he has accepted me? And so I look to Christ by faith and I desire to obey out of gratitude. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this evening. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for these words. We pray that they would be more than mere words to us, but that the truths of these words would be implanted deep in our minds and hearts. Lord, would you please fix our eyes afresh on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray that you would help us to meditate on our union with Christ and your love for us, Lord Jesus, and that you would help us to abide in those truths, that you would remind us daily of who we are in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Oh God, would you do this for your glory and our good? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.